0: So we're not going uh, to be spending a whole lot of time in 1 Corinthians this morning um, because the Lord led me, or I hope he led me, and wasn't me leading myself, um, to uh, just study what the Bible has to say about wisdom. Because when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and we go from there on into chapter 2, Paul is going to talk a lot about wisdom. He's going to talk about God's wisdom. He's going to talk about the world's wisdom. And I think if we study what the Bible has to say about wisdom as a whole, and specifically about those two forms of wisdom that Paul will get into, that'll help us understand those passages better when we do get there. So, we're going to ask five questions this morning, and we'll turn to the scriptures to find the answers to those questions. And I'm going to be wearing out your your fingers in flipping through the Bibles, so limber up your fingers, because we're going to be going all over the place. So the first question is this, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? How does the Bible define wisdom? If you were to pick up a concordance and look at all the places where the word wisdom shows up in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you would find that this word is very, versatile. It's used in many different contexts. For example, um, Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. You don't have to turn there uh, for the sake of time. We won't. But in that passage, you'll see how God has been giving instructions on how the temple is to be built, the various utensils that are to be used, the type of clothing that the priests are to wear, and God gives wisdom to to certain individuals to know how to make these things. He gives them the understanding of how to go about it and the skill to actually do it, to produce what God wanted to be produced. There we see that word wisdom show up in that context of craftsmanship. And then if you were to turn to Job chapter 12, verse 12, we see wisdom being associated with age, that as you get older, you accumulate more and more wisdom and if you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 3 which is where we were in Sunday school this morning that that chapter, the second half of that chapter is that famous narrative you'll remember Solomon has two women come before him one woman claims that this other woman stole her son these two ladies were living together in the same house they both had children around the same time one woman's son died. And so that woman, she took her dead son and swapped him out for the living son of the other woman. And that woman who woke up with this dead son who she doesn't recognize, she brings that complaint to Solomon. And it's this very difficult case because they were alone in the house. There were no wit- the witnesses to be called. It was just her word against his. And at the end of that chapter, it says that in figuring out the answer to that dilemma, Solomon showed great wisdom in how he rendered a judgment. So, there you see wisdom used in the context of rendering judgment. And then we read from Job chapter 28, and at the very end of Job 28, we see wisdom involving how we live before God. There's that moral aspect to wisdom. Another couple of references just showing the breadth of the usage of this word, Daniel chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 17, where the king is looking for gifted men, men who have wisdom in many different subjects, many different areas of learning. We see there that you can have great wisdom in many different disciplines, many different categories. So these are all different ways that wisdom, the word, is used. And if we were to look at the New Testament uses of wisdom, we would see a similar range of contexts where the word is used. But what does it mean to have wisdom depending on whichever context you're in? What does wisdom mean? What is it? Well, as I mentioned in Sunday school, Hebrew poetry helps us out quite a bit here. Because in Hebrew poetry, it doesn't rhyme the way we form poems in our culture, in Hebrew poetry, it is often made up of parallel statements, like one saying one thing one way and then immediately following up by saying it a different way, but building on the same idea. That is a common feature of Hebrew poetry. And this kind of poetry is used in talking about wisdom, and it helps us to understand what wisdom is. So here's a few. We only have time to go to Proverbs. So turn to Proverbs, chapter 1. Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. That's the first phrase. And then you have a parallel statement. To discern the sayings of understanding. So you see that wisdom is tied very closely to instruction, and Solomon goes on to say it another way, to discern the sayings of understanding. Wisdom involves all of these things, discernment and understanding. Then turn to chapter 2 and verse 2. Look what, look what Solomon writes. He says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom, and then the parallel statement, Incline your heart to understanding. Then go down to verse 10. For wisdom will enter your heart. And what's the parallel statement? Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Then flip over to chapter 14 and verse 8. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way. And then you have a contrasting statement. But the foolishness of fools is deceit. Then go to chapter 19. Chapter 19 and verse 20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. And then the last one we'll go to is chapter 23 and verse 23. says, Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and and instruction and understanding. So in all these passages, and there's many more you could go to in Psalms, in Ecclesiastes, you see wisdom constantly being paired um, with these other qualities. Wisdom is concerned with how to make right decisions, right judgments, how to behave. Wisdom is concerned with What is true. Wisdom is synonymous with understanding, with instruction, discernment, learning, counsel, sensibility. So we see in these verses that wisdom is not only knowing the facts and the principles about something, but also knowing how to skillfully put those principles into practice in order to have success in that different. those differing areas of life where one can have wisdom. For example, a wise carpenter, he both understands the principles behind carpentry and he understands how to skillfully execute those principles in order to build a house. A carpenter who knows the principles but can't actually practically build a house, we don't call him a wise carpenter. He's never built a house in his life. You need both. The, the understanding of, of what the principles are and the understanding of how to put those things into practice. That's what wisdom is. And this this type of wisdom shows up most notably in that case of Solomon that I referred to with those two women. And in that uh, that situation, that impossible dilemma, well, she says one thing, she says another thing, there's no witnesses, how can I arrive at the right conclusion? We see how Solomon uses wisdom. He understands certain principles. He understands what the right thing to do is, get the boy to his real mother, but he also understands human behavior. He understands that a loving mother will willingly give up her son to preserve his life, whereas a selfish and deceitful woman will react spitefully to being denied what she wants. Yeah, go ahead, Solomon. Cut the child in two. And so Solomon is able to leverage what he knows in order to arrive at the right conclusion. So do you see that how, that how wisdom works, the practical outworking of that understanding? So that's what wisdom is, broadly speaking. But let's narrow our focus down to those two types of wisdom that I mentioned that Paul is going to speak about when we eventually get uh, further on into 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What what types of wisdom is he talking about? He's talking about the wisdom of the world on one hand and the wisdom of God on the other hand. And it's very important for us to see what the difference is between these two types of wisdom because the type of wisdom we subscribe to will radically impact how we live our lives. And you, depending on which Which type of wisdom you're devoted to, you're going to end up at a certain end destination that is very different from the end destination of that other form of wisdom. So it's very important that we understand this. And here's another key thing to to stick in your mind as we consider the differences between these two types of wisdom. What someone considers to be wisdom largely depends upon that person's world view. And we'll, we'll unfold that as we go on, but just keep that in your mind. What a biblically-minded follower of Christ considers to be wise behavior will in many ways be very different from what an unbeliever considers to be wise behavior. And that's going to show up as we dig deeper into these two types of wisdom. So first, what is the wisdom of the world? What is the wisdom of the world? That's our second Question, And for that, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What is the wisdom of the world? And the passage I have in mind is verses 18 through 32. 18 through 32. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. Hopefully most of you are somewhat familiar with it. If you're not, read it later on but just run your eyes through the passage as I refer to to various verses that illustrate what the, the wisdom of the world is. First look at verse 22, where Paul says that the world professes claims to have wisdom. They profess to be wise, the unbelieving world. They profess to have a form of wisdom. But what does Paul testify about this worldly wisdom? Well, look at verses 18 through 20. What characterizes this worldly wisdom? Well, it's ungodly. It's unrighteous. And it rejects the revealed truth of God. What does verse 21 tell us about this wisdom? Verse 21 tells us that worldly wisdom deliberately denies God the honor and the thanksgiving that are due to him. And not only that, but it chases after futile speculations, that is, empty reasonings, philosophies, ideas, that can bear no eternal good fruit. They cannot satisfy. They're just empty ideas and pursuits. And it results in having a blindfolded heart, unwilling, unable to see the light of the truth of God. And verse 22 again, in the eyes of God, the world's wisdom is foolish. And it's interesting that Greek word for foolish, it's morino, which we get our English word moron from. So in the eyes of God, the wisdom of the world is moronic. Verse 23, what does worldly wisdom do? It trades the infinite and incorruptible glory of God for the shame of the finite creature. Verse 25, worldly wisdom exchanges truth for lies and it worships the creature instead of worshiping the creator. Verses 26 and 27, it chases after feelings and desires, passions that can only bring disgrace and destruction to the one pursuing them. Verses 28 to 31, worldly wisdom leads only to greater and greater wickedness. And then finally, verse 32, worldly wisdom in willful ignorance chases death and it encourages others to chase that death. So that's worldly wisdom. Continuing in that line of thought, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is where we see how worldview affects what you consider to be wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, look down to verse 16. In this chapter, Paul is defending the doctrine of the resurrection. Listen to what he says in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still In your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And then, continuing with that same type of thought, go to verse 31, where Paul speaks of how he's living based on the fact that there's a resurrection. He's willing to die now because he has hope in the resurrection. Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul is constantly denying his flesh what his flesh desires for the sake of pursuing Christ. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, the worldview of worldly wisdom is a worldview where man is king, not God, and there's no hope of resurrection in Christ. That's the worldly worldview, or the worldly wisdom's worldview. And so from the perspective of worldly wisdom, where there's no resurrection, man is king, not God, from the perspective of that worldview, to pick up your cross, and to deny yourself, and to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, that is utterly foolish. Because you are denying yourself what, what the world sees as the only pleasure that you can possibly get. This life is all you've got. You might as well get what you can get now. For tomorrow we die. So you see, from the worldly perspective, to follow Christ, that is moronic behavior. But So Paul is is reminding these believers that there is a resurrection. He's bringing them back to that Christian worldview because from the Christian worldview, the the perspective of godly wisdom, to live for yourself, that is actually foolishness. So you see how your worldview determines what you think is really wise behavior. And turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, continuing to dig down into what worldly wisdom is. Colossians 2, in this letter, Paul is trying to direct the believers away from worldly wisdom, worldly philosophy. He doesn't want them to get uh, trapped or sucked into the world's way of thinking. And listen to what he says about worldly wisdom in chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So what does that tell you about worldly wisdom? He's trying to keep them from going down that route. What does he say about worldly wisdom? It's persuasive. It's persuasive. It lures you in as the serpent lured Eve. It's like what Shakespeare said, not all that glitters is gold. Not everything that sounds good and true actually is good and true. Just because it looks good doesn't mean that that is what you should be believing or chasing. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Worldly wisdom takes people captive and it enslaves them to empty lies that cannot satisfy and cannot lead them to God. Look at verse 16. Paul goes on. He says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one, that is those who are peddling these persuasive arguments, trying to lure them away from Christ, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So for a believer to get sucked in by worldly wisdom, that worldly wisdom defrauds believers of maturity and satisfaction in Christ. If you're a believer and you get sucked into worldly wisdom, that stops your growth in Christ. And then finally in Colossians, verse 20 Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, in other words, if you've died to worldly wisdom, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? If you've died to wisdom, why are you now enslaving yourself to worldly wisdom? Such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That tells us worldly wisdom provides no power in the fight against sin, the world's way of thinking. So that's worldly wisdom. That's what characterizes it. But what is the wisdom of God? Well, go back to Job 28. What is the wisdom of God? We won't read this chapter again because we already read it, but I'll just walk through it with you. Job 28. According to this chapter, the wisdom of God is the most valuable thing that a man or a woman can obtain. And oftentimes, the most valuable things in life are the hardest things to get, right? Verses 1 through 11 tells us that. It tells us of the great lengths. Remember, uh, we read this chapter. It talks about how how far a man will go to get gold, to get precious stones. He'll turn mountains over. He'll risk his life hanging from from ropes, trying to get deeper and deeper into the earth to find these, these precious materials. They're very hard to get, they're very valuable, and man will go to great lengths to try to find them. But we learn in this chapter that wisdom is even more valuable than gold and precious stones. And it stands to reason that also indicates it's harder to find. Wisdom is even harder to find than gold and precious stones. Verses 12 through 22, he begins that section by asking where can wisdom be found? The depths of the earth can't tell you. They don't know. Nobody knows where wisdom can be found. In fact, wisdom is impossible to find because only God knows where it is. That's what we found in verse 23. God understands its way. He knows its place. Nobody else in all creation knows where wisdom is can be found. Only God knows. And human history has borne this out. If you look at the world today and you look down the corridors of history, you will see how the world has been falling over itself in order to try and find wisdom. If you took a class in philosophy, or you know, that was that class in history where you fell asleep because of philosophy on philosophy on philosophy, and it all just melts together in your mind, these guys pursuing wisdom. Every generation forms its own set of philosophies claiming to have finally hit upon the truth, only to have the next generation discard their philosophy that they devoted their lives to because that generation finds it inadequate. It's every generation there's a new set of philosophies. But according to verse 28 of Job 28, only God can supply true wisdom to man. And he he says it in a single verse. To man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. True wisdom, godly wisdom, is fearing the Lord, trusting in him, turning away from everything that is contrary to him and living in accordance with who he is. And when we get to the New Testament, we discover even more about the wisdom of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, Paul has much to say about the wisdom of God in contrast with the wisdom of the world. And I want to point out to you how Paul refers to the wisdom of God, this wisdom that the world, from its worldview, considers foolish. Look at how Paul describes the wisdom of God. Verse 18, he calls the wisdom of God the word of the cross. That's what Paul preached, that's what the world viewed as foolish, the word of the cross. Verses 23 to 24, this wisdom of God is described as Christ crucified. Verse 24, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is not just a set of principles, it's a person, the Lord Jesus himself. And then in verse 30 of chapter 1, he says that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. And then down in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we're told how this wisdom of God is rejected by the world. It's not understood by the world. Remember, the world, from its unbelieving perspective, looks at Christ crucified and deems it moronic, foolish. Who would give their life devote their life to that. The world has not understood the wisdom of God. I won't have you turn there, but Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we learn in these verses that the wisdom of God was manifested most clearly and brightly in the the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the wisdom of God. So we've seen the content of God's wisdom and how it's very different from the world's wisdom, the world's way of doing things. And we saw how the world's wisdom leads to death, degradation, destruction, further wickedness. But how does God's wisdom take us anywhere different? How does God's wisdom lead us to a better destination? Well, go to 2 Timothy 3. I told you I would wear out your fingers. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Speaking of the scriptures. You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom. That's godly wisdom. Able to give you the wisdom that leads to what? To salvation. God's wisdom leads us to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation from the wrath of God against your sin. Salvation from enslavement to your sins. That is godly wisdom. And hopefully now it's pretty clear to you which wisdom is preferable. There's one that leads to wickedness and death and there's one that leads to righteousness and life. Hopefully it's pretty clear which one should be chosen. Hopefully you have a desire for godly wisdom. And that leads us to our fourth question. How can I tell by which wisdom I'm walking. I'm sure we all know all, all, all of us don't want to end up in destruction. I'm sure we all prefer to end in life, life eternal. So that's a very important question. How can I tell by which wisdom I'm walking? Well, turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. In this passage, like Paul, James talks about two different types of wisdom. There's the wisdom of God and there's the wisdom of the world. James chapter 3, verse 13. He says, "Who among you is wise? He's speaking of godly wisdom here. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, this worldly wisdom, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, Godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, Reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can tell which wisdom you are walking by by observing your life. If you have been taken captive by worldly wisdom and philosophy, Your life is being consumed by bitter jealousy, by selfish ambition. And your life is in a shambles, whether you know it or not, whether those who look at your life observe it as something that's all put together or falling apart. Your life is in a shambles. But if instead you have been set free by the wisdom of God, your life will be growing bit by bit more and more into Christ-likeness. So the question is, by which wisdom are you walking? And if in considering that question, you see that you have been taken captive by worldly wisdom, how can you exchange that for God's wisdom? And that's our fifth question. How can you acquire God's wisdom? Because you don't want to end up in destruction. You want to end up in life. You don't want to, hopefully, the Lord is convicting you. You don't want to pursue wickedness anymore. You want to pursue God. You want to pursue righteousness. Well, first, to get at the answer of this question of how to acquire God's wisdom, you have to acknowledge what lies at the heart of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Because there's a person at the center of each one of these different types of wisdom. At the center of worldly wisdom is yourself. You're worshiping yourself. You're obsessed with yourself, with promoting yourself, pursuing what you want instead of what God wants. And the Bible calls that idolatry. The Bible calls that sin. And as a holy judge, God must punish all sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And the problem with being at the center of your own wisdom is that you cannot, by your wisdom, remedy your frightful condition. You can't fix it. You cannot save yourself from the wrath of God. That's why you need to know who's the person lying at the center of godly wisdom. And we've seen that that person is Jesus Christ, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the wisdom of God. He's God the Son. And he in his infinite wisdom did what? He became a man. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. And as such, he lived a perfectly righteous life in the place of his sinful people. And he died on the cross Suffering the just wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he rose from the dead in order to raise his dead people to new life in him. Jesus alone has done everything necessary to save sinners. You need him. You don't need more of yourself. You need Jesus Christ. But remember what we learned in Job 28 that we're not able to get this wisdom this Christ for ourselves. We can't fly up into heaven and bring him down here to us. We can't burrow to the center of the earth and find him there. There's no amount of good works that you can perform in order to make Christ save you. You are unable to render him desirous of you. You can't do it. Only God, in his grace, can bring you to Christ. Only God can give you that wisdom that leads to salvation. So how do you lay hold of Christ? That's the question. How do we acquire God's wisdom? How do I receive Christ? Well, turn to James chapter 1. And verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." So how do you get this wisdom? How do you get Christ? How do you receive salvation? You have only to sincerely ask for God to bring Christ to you, to apply the salvation that Jesus purchased, to apply that to your account. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, "The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand; repent and believe in the gospel." You have only to repent. That is to turn away from your sins, to turn away from your worldly wisdom and to see it as the evil and bankrupt thing that it really is. You have only to believe, that is to to trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did everything necessary to save sinners. But James said that in asking for this, you must not doubt That doesn't mean that you cannot have any unanswered questions lingering in your mind. But it does mean that you have to be sincere in asking Jesus to save you. Many people ask Jesus to save them. But what they really mean is, just get me out of hell, but let me keep living the way I want to live. That's being a double-minded man. You're asking for two things. You're trying to hang on to your worldly wisdom and asking God to give me also his wisdom that leads to life. You can't have both at the same time. You have to be willing for Jesus to come and save you from worldly wisdom and to be your Lord and Master, to call the shots, to be your Savior in full so you must sincerely repent and sincerely believe in Christ. And he promised he will save you. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise from God, and he always keeps his promises. So Let's pray. Lord, your word has instructed us on what wisdom is. Lord, I pray that uh, if I have not been clear, that your spirit would use your word and and bring these truths clearly to every heart and mind that's here this morning. Lord, that if anyone's here who is walking by worldly wisdom, pursuing sin, um, still in rebellion against you, Lord, may you, by your mercy, by your grace, may you open their eyes, may you draw them to your son, help them to see him as... The treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of great price, worth giving up everything to have, Lord. Help them to know they cannot earn this salvation. It is is to be received as a gift from your hand, Lord. Grant them sincere repentance and faith. And Lord, those of us who you have by your mercy saved, Lord, there are times that we still fall into walking by worldly wisdom. We still are susceptible to being taken captive and, and, and not pursuing Christ as, as devotedly as we ought to be. Lord, may you uh, remove the scales from our eyes. May you help us to see more clearly. May you grow us in our love for Christ. May we see him as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May we more and more be convinced uh, and experience the reality that he alone satisfies that He is our everything, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.